If you've ever Googled a computer science or a programming question, you've likely found an answer, or many, on Stack Overflow. It was founded in 2008, and it was named after a common computing error. Stack Overflow empowers the world to develop technology through collective knowledge. More than 100 million people visit Stack Overflow every month, making it one of the 50 most visited websites in the world. Stack Overflow's products include its market-leading knowledge sharing and collaboration platform, Stack Overflow for Teams, in addition to Stack Overflow Reach and Relevance, which is focused on advertising. Stack Overflow for Teams is a knowledge sharing and collaboration solution that developers and managers already know and trust. It's for companies who need to increase productivity, decrease cycle times, accelerate time to market, and protect institutional knowledge. In this episode, we talk with Tom Limoncelli, a manager at Stack Overflow, an author, and a tech advocate. Full disclosure, this is a sponsored episode, but I want to say that I personally have deployed Stack Overflow for Teams at both of my new companies, the Supercompute company and the Rectangle company. Both of these companies are going to have complex org structures and lots of internal Q&A. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you check out Stack Overflow for Teams. I certainly have, and I'm using it. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. You work on a Q&A product called Stack Overflow for Teams. And my question is around the adoption of internal Q&A software. So there are de facto SaaS tools that have become part of every standard engineering stack. There's Slack, there's GitHub, there are a few other, I think Sourcegraph is becoming a standard. Why is the domain of internal, team-based, company-based Q&A a product that should be in the canonical SaaS product suite? Well, Jeff, I think the answer is that software development is a team sport. And as a part of a team, you need to communicate and you need to be able to record information that lasts longer than any one person stays at a company. You need Slack is good for real-time communication, but when you um, the benefit of Q and A system is it's it's permanent, it's citable, and lots of other lots of other reasons too. Why is this any different than having wiki software or advanced wiki software like Notion? Like, can't I just store all the necessary FAQs and Q&A and stuff in there? Good point. Excellent question. And, you know, I've been a, a Wiki fan since 2000, 2001. So I was kind of an earlyish adopter. Uh, I love Wikis. But one thing that I've noticed about Wikis is often they, they stall out. They, you know, people stop entering information in them. Or, you know, someone writes a really good Wiki page but no one updates it. People are, I don't know, you know, I've talked to people, some, some people are afraid to change someone else's document or they, they feel like, well, it's not my place to change another document, uh, a wiki page that someone else wrote. But in the Q&A format, it's, it's always polite to ask another question or, or put in a comment or even in our, you know, we have an articles function, which is, is basically a wiki. And, but, you know, we call that the uh, community wiki because it's, we want to encourage people to, to edit that document and keep it, keep it alive. 
I know how normal Stack Overflow fits into my workflow. And that is, if I have a question I don't know the answer to, I find the answer to it on Stack Overflow. I do not ever commit any kind of knowledge to the world of Stack Overflow. And I think there's a lot of people like me. And part of the reason for that is that I'm a little bit... I have stage fright. I don't want to go out in front of the entire world and say, look, I know the universal... Because that's what Stack Overflow is. Stack Overflow is, this is... You are basically going up against the Q&A viability of every other engineer on the internet. If you're doing it within the domain of a company, it's a lot more subjective. You're going to be more of a domain expert. It's more of an internal collaborative safe zone it seems like it's a very different experience than engaging in Q&A that is internet-wide. Yeah, it's so very different, and yet it's, it's so very much the same. I like to think of it as, you know, if you're a Python programmer and you have a Python question, sure, you can ask that question on Stack Overflow and you're going to get an answer. But if you're a developer at a company, and you know, there are companies with 20, 30, 100,000 developers which, you know, that's larger than the Stack Overflow user base, you know, uh, 10 years ago. And those developers have questions that are possibly like about some, you know, internal proprietary system. Maybe, maybe you're the maintainer or maybe you need to use some internal authentication library. Obviously, you can't post that on public Stack Overflow. Those people don't even have access to that library. But you can post that on Stack Overflow for Teams because it's private. So, so one way that it's different is just the you have a secure place to ask questions that can't be asked in public. And then the other way it's different is, yeah, the audience is different. It's your coworkers. And your coworkers, I find, are, are more likely to be more collaborative, more friendly, so to speak. So it's actually easier to ask questions there. You mentioned, you know, that you're... you're doing this in front of the whole world with Stack Overflow. Oh, no, you used the word, uh, the phrase stage fright. Yeah, I feel the same way. On public Stack Overflow, I, I'm kind of cautious about asking a question. But on Stack Overflow for Teams, I see very different kind of questions asked. Like, yeah, sure, there's the technical questions. But one of my favorite questions on at Stack was someone asked, hey, uh, we all use this particular tool. Does anyone have any tips about how to use it better? And there were dozens of really interesting write-ups. I learned so much from reading that. And you know, some of them were technical. Some of them were just surprises. Like, hey, you know, if you press shift while pr- clicking that one particular button, the feature acts totally differently. And here's the cool things you could do with that. And that's not the kind of question that people frequently ask on Stack Overflow, or actually Stack Overflow public is, is actually they discourage questions that are opinions, right? It's supposed to be, you know, technical, canonical questions and answers. But you have more flexibility when it's Stack Overflow for Teams, when it's your own personal Q&A system. So Slack has been a work in progress for the software product development lifecycle we have learned over time the norms of Slack, and Slack UX has adjusted itself to be more in line with the norms. What are the norms that develop around a Q&A product? 
you know, I'm not on the design side, but as a user, I'd say one of the norms inside Stack is when someone asks a really good question on Slack, often the response is, hey, that's a great question. Or actually, when someone writes up a great answer on Slack, the response is often, hey, that's a great answer. You should really record that and let's memorialize that by putting that up on Stack Overflow for Teams. And and actually, we have a um, an integration with Slack. So that makes that easier. In, in fact, it, it basically works like someone will ask a question in Slack and then someone else will use the integration and basically click a button that the bot jumps in and says, hey, I see you're, ans- you're asking a question. Would you like help transferring that over into Stack Overflow for Teams? And that actually helps prime the pump and move the conversation to, to Stack Overflow for Teams. And as a result, it's not just one person asking the question in a particular Slack channel, but it's it becomes more searchable. Other people might jump in with answers. So that's that's one norm. Another norm is just the fact that there's different, I'd say there's, in my mind, there's different kinds of questions. There's the specific technical issue question. There's the, the general, like, how could I use this tool better question. There's also more open-ended questions like, like, what's the history of this? Why was this designed this way? That's a question that you might not see on Stack Overflow public, but at Stack, frequently someone will say, like, I know that we do this a certain way. How did that happen? And people that have been at the company for a long time can, can chime in. And people have written, like, long essays explaining the history of things, which I always laugh because... If as a manager, if I had assigned that person, you're like, please, you know, I, I would like you to write an essay on, you know, why this is and put it in our document repo. The person, like, no one likes to write documentation, I find, especially when your boss tells you to do it. But when a coworker asks, hey, what's what's the history of this? People will just write and write and write. And you you learn so much, so much valuable stuff that way. Yeah, there are different cultures. Different companies have different cultures around the written word. You know, Amazon has this culture around the memo, the six-page memo culture. And I think that works great for Amazon. Maybe it would work great for every company, but it doesn't seem like every company wants to do that. The format of Q&A is a compelling, I mean, as a podcaster, it's obviously a compelling domain because podcasting is entirely Q&A. So I know... The value of, of, of Q&A is it's, it's the Socratic dialogue. There's a, there's a reason the Socratic dialogue is a big deal. It's, it's, you have a question-driven, curiosity-driven narrative structure or, or way of architecting the information systems in your company. Uh, it's a very natural form. And that, to me, is, is, is a desirable way. It's a desirable means of communication in a company. It's not to say you don't want readme.io or you don't want... Confluence or whatever, but having a dedicated place that encourages and facilitates Q&A seems pretty useful. Sure. And and one nice aspect of that is it's a Q&A sites acknowledge that there's more than one answer. The word I like to use is it democratizes education. So if I think back to my education, so much of it in school was a lecturer standing in the front of the room telling 
20 or 100 people, this is the way things are. And questions were supposed to be to clarify what the person said. And that is a very different mode than a Q&A website where education's democratized. So first of all, there's more than one right answer, right? Someone might say, well, I, I wrote that library and this is what you should do. Someone else might post another answer that says, yeah, I agree, but this is the code snippet that we use every time and it's, it's better for these reasons. And so now you have a dialogue. Uh, also, like the example I gave before with like, what tips do you have about XYZ? You, you'll get dozens of answers. And what I, I really like about that is the fact that it breaks this tradition that some companies have of that senior people teach everyone else and instead replaces that with a model where everyone teaches everyone. It really democratizes the education within your company. And this is a very long answer to a very short question that you asked, but I also think back very early in my career, there was a time where I went to a training class. It was a three-day training class, and I, I learned one thing. I mean, I, I went there because there was one particular question that I wanted answered, and I did get that answer, and it was great. But think about it. I had to wait a month for the class. The class was three days. The one thing that I really, really, really wanted to learn took about 15 minutes out of those three days. Compare that to how we want to learn today. Learning is on demand. It's instant. You know, I will write a question in Slack. Someone will hit that button that says, hey, this, this would be... Well, oh, so I don't determine that this would be a good thing to list in the Q&A section. A different coworker says, oh, yeah, that's a great question. That's not just a great question. I want the answer memorialized. So they click that button. It goes into Stack Overflow. And now we're writing it there. And I'm not just getting one answer. I'm getting multiple viewpoints. And I can upvote the one that was or multiple items that were useful to me. I can also tag it. I can make it more searchable. And that's just the question asker point of view. Um, from the answer point of view, I was speaking to an engineer a couple months ago. He, he maintains a, a library inside a, a very large bank. And for years, he, he just kind of maintained this library or him and his team maintained this library. And it was kind of a lonely thing, right? They knew people used it only because people complained about it. They would file bugs. But once they got Stack Overflow for Teams, they registered a tag related to this library that they maintained. And he, part of his morning ritual is he comes in in the morning and looks for new questions that are tagged with, with that tag. And so now the questions are flowing to him. And he feels so much better about his job because he's helping people. He begins every day helping people use his library better and get feedback about how how it's used and where it's used and how he can do a better job. And this guy says it's actually helped his morale. So uh, I, I'm just, I, I'm kind of fascinated with that story because it's, it's so, so much the opposite of the, the lecturer standing in front of class telling people how things are to be. Let's talk about engineering a little bit. Presumably there is some code that you can take from core Stack Overflow and put into Stack Overflow for Teams, how much, what's the migration story there? How much code were you able to borrow and what did you have to write from scratch? Oh, excellent question. So the engineering story 
is, is very interesting. So first of all, our goal is to have one software base, one big Git repo that, well, it's actually multiple small repos, but, but one, one collection of repos that you compile it one way and it's the public stack overflow. You compile it another way and it's, you know, our enterprise product, et cetera, et cetera. And we try to keep the, you know, for the programmers out there, the, you know, the, the pound if defs for lack of a better term, as small as possible. So it is one big code base that does many different things. And that's been some challenges because we actually have, for the different ways that we build the product, some of them have slightly different database schemas or certainly authentication is different, et cetera. So uh, there's kind of a, I wouldn't say a plug-in architecture, but definitely, well, with a little hand-waving, I'll I'll call it a plug-in architecture. One of the nice things is since we started with a code base that scales to millions of users and billions of questions, wait, I think I reversed that, millions of questions and billions of users, Stack Overflow, you know, the the business product and other things, scale is less of a problem because, you know, we're starting with a code base that is is for a huge number of users and we're scaling it down. And in terms of company strategy and at uh, resource allocation, you've got this core product of Stack Overflow. There's plenty of engineering work to be done around that. How do you divert engineering resources from that core product to a new product? Oh, that's an interesting question. And that's, you know, my boss's boss is actually the the expert in that. She's really kind of changed the org structure to be better for what we're trying to do today. And I, I won't go into the details, but the first thing is the way you phrase the question def kind of sounded like you know are we stealing developers off for for one thing and that starving products in other areas and I, I don't think that was your intention but I just want to be clear that we're we're hiring like crazy <laughs> so there you know people are shifting around but if I had to summarize it in a nutshell I'd say we're organizing so that there's a team for each persona so to speak so. There's a, a team, in, instead of a team that's either trying to do everything, like instead of a, a huge team that tries to do everything, or a couple small teams each responsible for a different technology, instead the teams are organized around users. So, for example, there's a team that's focused on the onboarding process or a sub-team. There's a sub-team that's focused on billing, for example, or or the, the Q&A experience itself, the actual act of asking a question and answering a question. And so that way, each team becomes focused on, instead of focusing on the technologies, they're focused on the users. So they learn, they're learning what the users need, how they act, how they, how they interact, and becoming experts in that. And then writing the code is really a sub-problem, if you think about it. Once you understand your users, writing the code is the sub-problem. So you've worked at uh, you worked at Google for eight years, was it seven, seven, seven years? years Google about. for seven years, mm-hmm. and then Stack Overflow for eight years, right? Yep, and Bell Labs for seven years before Google. Epic. How has your perspective on management changed in those different zones in those different uh, time periods? 
You know, I'd say all three had different variations of hire smart people and get out of their way, but at different scales. So I would say, you know, at Google, managers spent a lot of their time dealing with the politics, the internal politics to shield the engineers so they didn't have to deal with them or in many cases were oblivious to them. At Stack, the focus has been more on getting to know the engineers, getting to know how they work and what their roadblocks are and focus your time on clearing the roadblocks and sometimes helping them to clear roadblocks or just, you know, sometimes they're, you're teaching someone to fish, sometimes you're, you're, you're doing the fishing. But Stack is very much a company that believes in uh, servant management. What is it? Ah, now I'm blanking on the term. Servant leadership? Uh, servant leadership. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And which is kind of funny because I've, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of companies that use that phrase, but I've never seen it emphasize so much than at Stack. I mean, I really feel like the managers at Stack, they're, they're interviewed for that kind of management style. And we really, we have the internal tools and support to, to be able to really do that. So as, as an example, if two engineers came to me saying, hey, we've been arguing for a week over, should we do it this way or that way? Why don't you make the decision for us? My response would be, I'm not going to make that decision for you. I'm going to help you with the communication. Let's, let's, let's sit down. Let's work out the pros and cons. I'm going to help you make that decision because you're the engineer. You should be making that decision. If, imagine if managers made you know, all engineering decisions. Well, that would be a disaster. And you know, I might have great ideas. I, I do. I mean, I've been an engineer. I mean, I am an engineer. I, I still write code, in fact. But the real engineering decisions have to come from the engineers. The history of Stack Overflow is that it came out of Fog Creek Software, right? That's the name of the company. That came. So Fog Creek Software birthed Stack Overflow, Trello, Discourse, Glitch, right? Four of them? Was there four of them? Yeah, was there I don't know if I don't know if Discord No Discourse. Discourse count I don't know if Discourse oh, okay. counts. Okay. But because I'm you know, at at a certain point we were separate enough from Fog Creek that I can't accurately recount the history. But but yeah, so they Fog Creek in did spawn many different projects, just what was it like in the uh I guess the Ivory Tower not the Ivory Tower, the Googleplex. <laughs> The, the insulated Googleplex, the firewalled Googleplex, firewall of ideas. That's an interesting story because, um, yeah, so I was, I was in the Google bubble. We were certainly having amazing conversations internally and learning a lot of stuff. We, all, the, all the stuff that we now call DevOps was being discussed using different terminology. That's why the ESRI versus DevOps divide happened because, in my opinion, you know, Google was insular. And, and actually, when I was no longer at Google, I, you know, I, I've written some books on IT and IT topics. And when I, uh, af well, after Google, I, I said, I really need to write a book that's like the cloud computing book. And Google had just started being more public about their internal techniques and policies. But I, I was afraid that if I used the phrase SRE in my book, I might get in trouble. I don't know what you know, in hindsight, that's silly because like 
what, what do you mean? Someone's going to sue you over an acronym. But then Google started to be much more public. They, they helped create SRECON with, with the Usenix Association. They started publishing these books and everything. And, and the world of Google terminology had to meld with the independently developed you know, DevOps terminology. And it's kind of like how you know, two different people invented calculus at the same time. There was just a desperate need to do that kind of math. And what's the phrase? Necessity is the mother of invention. And so similarly, DevOps and, and SRE came about in parallel. And now the, the terminology is kind of merged. But yeah, it was really weird. When I, when I left Google, I spent a month kind of in the wilderness asking people all these questions that must have sounded crazy because I was like, what's the equivalent of, you know, what does the rest of the world call this kind of thing? And yeah, it was quite an experience. In 2014, you published Practice of Cloud System Administration, the DevOps and SRE Practices for Web Services, Volume 2. Well, actually, was that the first one in 2014? The, the titles, yeah, naming is hard. And so actually, this is the 20th anniversary of my, my system administration book. And in 2014, wow. we called the next version, we wrote from scratch a new book, which is the one that you just mentioned. We called it Volume Two because it's kind of the the sequel to the the Sisman book. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're. I think I lost your question. Well, well, first of all, congratulations. So I I'm publishing my first book actually on July 6th, and it was an arduous process. So congr- congratulations on writing a book, multiple books. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And you're writing about cloud system administration, so. If you've been thinking about sysadmin for 20 years, you have seen history repeat itself more times than I have. I've been in the industry basically for a decade. Today, when I build software, I am looking for the highest level available building blocks. If I can get a SageMaker managed machine learning system, I'm going to use that. If I can get a completely managed database, I'm going to use that. I don't want to be thinking about operations. I don't want to be thinking about, you know, inserting agents if I can. Like, I want to do a one-click high level, like, yeah, put the agent on my container sort of thing. Is this world anything, is it notably new? When you think about the timeline of development, the level of abstraction that we're working with, where so much of the lower level plumbing has been pulled away. Does it feel definitively new to you or, or does it feel just like a, a natural next step? Jeff, it feels new every day to me because, and rather than looking at it as we, we keep reinventing the wheel, I look at it as this long, slow or you know, punctuated series of changes that are all in one direction. And that direction is higher levels of abstraction. And as a second place, I'd say the, the other big change is scale. Scale keeps getting bigger and bigger. So my first job out of college, I thought my boss was the best system administrator ever. And one example I would tell people is, you know, back then, we, you didn't buy an Ethernet cable. You bought the, the cable and the connectors and, you, and a little device that would crimp the end connector onto those what, six or eight wires that are that are in the cable. And he could crimp them and get it working on the first try. I would crimp and it wouldn't pass the test. Yes, you got a little machine that would test your Ethernet cable. And I would have to crimp like two or three times before I got it right. And I was so impressed that he could get it right on the first time every time. Fast forward 30 years, 
who even thinks about making their own cable, right? You you order it at you know three foot, six foot, whatever length you want. There's a variety of lengths, and and actually, silly me, who even orders cables anymore, right? If you need to cable up a machine, there's an API call that makes a machine in the cloud, and you don't even care how it connects to the network. A lot of system administrators don't even learn the kind of fundamental or low-level networking that I had to learn because, you know, computers just magically talk to each other now, and you're concerned with what's the latency, not how it gets there. So, yeah, we just keep moving further and further away from from the hardware, and thank God, because who wants to sit all day, you know, racking and stacking machines? I would rather have an API call that spins up a machine have my little Terraform script that you know configures the network and sets up machines and a CI/CD system that deploys software. I mean, when I got started, deploying software was often like it would. The first step in deploying software was picking which weekend you were going to kill because you were going to spend that weekend deploying, you know, doing the big release and hoping that you know if we get it all done on Saturday, we don't have to lose our Sunday also. I'm so happy that we don't have that anymore. Or, I mean, that I don't have that. I know there are still companies that are in that situation. But so, yeah, I think this is all progress. I've been in a data center only a few times in my life. And one of them was a few weeks ago. And I was walking around this data center with a friend of mine. And he was telling me about what a company like Google has to do to avoid, for example, noisy neighbor problems and and all of the cascading failures that can occur from noisy neighbor problems, where if you, you know, if you, if you, if you misplace some workloads, you're going to have them too close to one another, they're going to both be noisy, they're going to cause a problem. And then if your scheduler is, is uh, operating in some peculiar fashion, you might have the scheduler reschedule those workloads and create more noisy neighbor problems and just basically corrupt everything. Like you have some kind of crazy downstream situation, take down a data center. I think that's kind of an extreme example, but it illustrates the level of sophistication that operating these data centers can entail. Do you have any insight about, I know you haven't been at Google for eight years or whatever, but just as a theoretician, who's written multiple books on this topic. I know this is not exactly the domain of of kind of sysadmin, sysadmin but it seems like it sort of overlaps or has some overlap. I'm sure you've spent some time talking to data center people. Can you tell me about the, like, how hostile is that environment these days? Or has, has it been like, have we operationalized everything, abstract away all those problems? Yeah. Well, first I should say, I my last time in the data center was yesterday, actually. So Stack Overflow's webs, the, the public website is is still in the data center. And that, that could change in the next couple of years, but we still do some bare metal work. As far as problems like noisy neighbor problems at Google. So when I was leaving, they were doing stuff where containers were avoiding the noisy neighbor problem by, this has all been merged into the Linux kernel now, so it's, it's public, but containers can actually kind of lock certain RAM pages, but also network bandwidth and disk IO and stuff. So that's kind of avoiding the noisy neighbor problem at a very low level. And recently, Google's published some papers about avoiding at the, the high level. Like there's there's this, um, 
Actually, I haven't read the papers yet. <laughs> I, I've read the first half of some of the papers. That's right. so I, I, I shouldn't I, try to quote I, too I much. I cite papers from the abstract all the time. Okay. I think what Google's dealing with right now is, you know, it's kind of like the typical person is dealing with noisy neighbors at a very high granularity. And what I see as an, as an ex-Googler, when I read their uh, papers, what I'm seeing them doing is dealing with, they're dealing with it at such a small granularity that they actually refer to it as tail latency. And, you know, if you have a hundred machines doing the same thing, you're going to find that most of them are going to complete the same task in the same amount of time, but some are going to take longer. And, you know, there's a great paper, paper called The Tail at Scale that shows that Google is thinking about this problem way deeper than anyone else. And I think it's, it's a Google-sized problem, and most people don't need to deal with it at, at that scale. So while, while we're in the subject of low-probability events, I was having a conversation with somebody um, the other day about whether or not there's an irony here. The internet was basically developed to be uh, resistant to some catastrophe like a nuclear bomb, right? I worry now that our infrastructure is so dependent on the data centers that we actually now have the inverse problem, that if one of our data centers went off the face of the earth, like from one of these public clouds, that it could bring down the internet. How much faith do you have in the... um, Security. I, I know that's not totally in your domain, but given that you've worked at Google and you know you you have such a background in sysadmin, I'd love to hear your if you have or if you can give a take. If you don't want to, I understand. Well, I th- I think the important part of that conversation is that it's becoming more and more important to think about that kind of thing. It's important that everyone think about that kind of thing. The developers and operations. That thinking about that kind of thing used to be something that we would leave to operations. Oh, they'll figure it out. You know, but you can't write code one way and expect operations to run it a different way. So, for example, when we were launching Stack Overflow for Teams, we knew it was going to scale up huge because it's it's now completely free for like the first 50 users. And we were thinking, oh, my God, we're going to have huge scaling problems. So in the old days, I would have sat the SRE team down and said, OK, what are we going to do to make this scale? But you can only make so much progress if you're working inside a silo. So instead, what we did is we sat down with the architecture people and the application people and the SRE people, and we had a bigger conversation. What are we going to change in the code? I'm sorry, at the high level first, you know, how are we going to architect this? And then what are we going to change in the code? What are we going to change in our operational practices? What are we going to change in the operational code to make all of this work together? Because, you know, you can... You can only solve certain problems. I'm sorry. You can only when when you stay inside your silo, you can only fix you know the problems that are right in front of you. And and in fact, you make it's likely that you'll make operational optimizations that are good for you, but are a pain in the butt for the other silos. So you have to work together. So now your question is how how do you deal with all these dependencies around the internet? So our website, you know, depends on a CDN, depends on database stuff and caches and and all these different things, some of which are outside of our control. Our engineers have to be cognizant of what those things are. So for example, every new engineer at Stack gets a lecture or attends a lecture from, from the S3 team 
about what we want every developer to know about coding in our environment. And one of the things is that your code is going to depend on lots of different external things, database servers, cache servers, CDNs, etc., the internet itself. You have to write your code for three different situations. You have to write your code assuming everything's fine. You have to write your code assuming that the database is having a problem and had to go into read-only mode. And you have to write your code that is in a way that works if the database is just down. Like, you can't just show an, an error page saying, database down, you know, 404 or an error message, you know, five something. So that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. And that's uh, something that the developers have to consider at the very beginning of the design of a feature, not tack it on at the end. Okay, let's close off by revisiting the topic we explored at the top of the conversation, which is what you have been working on, which is the Teams product for Stack Overflow. The concept that you as a, or the general you, the average software company would derive value from having a domain-specific, company-specific platform. Just rephrase or reframe the thrust of why that is something that the average company or the average team should want. Sure. And I mean, I'm going to answer that two different ways. From the developer point of view, we as developers, we're, we're in a lot of pain. We spend hours of our day asking around, you know, not knowing the answer to some question, whether it's, you know, why is something working this way? Or how do I do this? Or how do I use this system that another coworker has developed? And that's a painful process to, to guess your way through it. You know, when back when we had, you know, two or three devs, you know, you can shout a question over the cubicle wall and someone's going to answer it. But now we don't have, you know, companies don't have two or three devs. They have teams of, of devs and, and some have, you know, thousands of devs. And so it solves that important information gap problem. I can also answer that from like the management perspective. It's hard to hire developers. There's a shortage of developers. So the ones that I have, I want them to be as productive as possible. And so every minute that is spent delayed because of a knowledge gap is a minute that I want to try to get rid of. So it's not just a developer like removing the pain from development. It's also just a, a productivity thing. And also, it's really fun. People talk about getting into a Wikipedia hole where you know they you know, spend an evening. You know, you you started looking for, you know, one thing, and an, an hour later you're reading about. And I won't cop to this, but maybe I just happen to be reading the, the reading the page about the all the different actors in the Wizard of Oz. Anyway, when you do that at work with Stack Overflow for Teams. You can do that same thing. And it's fun to learn about what other people are doing in the company and how things work. And and it's not just fun. It makes me a better employee. It makes me more productive. Wonderful. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff. It was a real pleasure being here.